I don't know, uh, I don't know if you guys could tell from different illustrations, but my dad was pretty strict growing up, okay? I feel a little bit bad. Uh, a few years ago, I, I was like, I, I don't wanna do any mean illustrations about my dad anymore, and so I tried not to, and then I still did a few. So that's me and my therapist, we gotta work through that. But my dad was pretty strict growing up, but there was this one time growing up that I think about every so often because he was like shockingly merciful in this moment where I definitely deserved to be punished and I was just, I was just shocked at how merciful he was. So uh, I, I think about it a lot. And, and so there was this time in high school, or you could say in high school, I had a bit of a ditching problem, okay? I, you could say I was addicted to ditching, okay? I don't know, at some point I like ditched with my friends and I was like, this feels incredible. Like I need to keep doing this all of the time. And so. I ditched a lot, and, and I got away with it very easily because the school had my wrong, the wrong phone number for my parents on file, okay? I, I, I don't know if I gave it to them, I can't remember, but I do remember at least at one point, I tried to correct it and say, hey, you have, you're one digit off, like you need to switch this number to a different number, and they didn't believe me because I didn't have a parent signature. They thought I was trying to do what I had already been doing, okay? So uh, anyways, so that my parents never got calls about this, and so by my senior year, my ditching was really bad. And it was particularly my classes that were around lunchtime, those were always the worst. So my class after lunch was Spanish class. I had, I'm not joking, I had something like 40 absences in this span, or tardies in this Spanish class. And my teacher was fed up with me. And so she found a way to contact my dad. I don't know how, but she found a way. She called my dad, talked to my dad about it and said, hey, Anthony's got like 40 absences in this class. What's wrong with him? And like, and just, so then I'm at school and my dad calls me and he says, hey, Anthony, uh, I just talked to your Spanish teacher and she said that you have something like 40 absences in your Spanish class. And that's when I stopped breathing, okay? That's what I was, I was like, okay. And as I was holding my breath, I was like, trying to come up with a bunch of different lies in my head. Okay, like how can I con my way out of this? I'm just gonna say, okay, it, I mean, she's just really bad at this. Like, I don't, I don't know what I was gonna say, but I, cause I was like, this is hard to get out of. And then he just continues and he just starts going, listen, you gotta be in that class. Just stop ditching, okay? And I'm like, okay. And then he goes, all right, I'll, I'll see you later. And, hangs up, and that, that was it. And that's all that ever happened. Like, I don't even think he brought it up at home later. Like, he was just like, please try to get A. I'm like, that's all right. I'm not going to do that. So, like, this is like, I was like, this is incredible. Like, my dad in this moment, he was like shockingly and unexpectedly merciful to me. Like, I, I deserve to be punished. And honestly, I probably did stop ditching. So maybe it was like a reverse psychology thing. But he, I stopped ditching after that. But he was in that moment, I still think about it. I'm like, what was it about that particular event that made my dad go, you know what? I'm not going to be strict in this moment. In fact, I'm going to be super cool. <laughs> like, and, and so my dad, was, it was just this moment where I, I always remember it because of how shocking and mer shockingly and unexpectedly merciful he was. And in Luke 15, in the story we're in today, I feel like what Jesus is trying to communicate about God is God is shockingly, and for that first century audience, unexpectedly, unexpectedly merciful. So if you don't know, we started a series in Luke 15 last week. I know uh, a lot of us miss church because of the snowstorm. Totally understandable. Some of us, you know, will be rewarded in heaven, though, who were here. And so uh, 
But we started a series in Luke 15, and what we saw in Luke 15 is Luke 15 is Jesus' response to these religious elite grumblers. They were grumbling about Jesus hanging out with all of these sinners. And so Jesus, in classic Jesus fashion, to deal with their grumbling, he says, I'm going to tell you three stories. And what we see in these three stories is we see Jesus' heart, which is God's heart, for sinners. Like in each of these stories, you begin to see that God has this huge heart for sinners. And, and, and all these stories are, are using these different metaphors to talk about how, what we're like as humans and metaphors to talk about what God is like and who he is. And so what we're doing in this series in particular is we're zooming in on the third story in Luke 15. We're going to actually cover the whole chapter uh, by the end of next week. But we're, we're really paying attention to this third parable that Jesus tells that's infamously called the, the parable of the prodigal son. I think a better name for it would be uh, the parable of the two lost sons. Because it's about two sons that are lost or disconnected from their father in different kinds of ways. And so what we're doing in this series is we're zooming in, we're doing a character study. So we're looking at this third story in particular, but we're doing a character study where each week we're looking at one of the main characters and just zooming in on that character and seeing what we can learn from that character. And so last week we learned about the prodigal son, which represented, really the prodigal son just represents any human out of connection with God. This week, we're going to look at the compassionate father, which represents God himself. And then next week, we're going to look at the older son, which represents a religious human that's out of connection with God. Okay? And what we're going to see today, as Jesus describes this compassionate father in this story, is the father is shockingly and unexpectedly merciful. I love Luke 15. Luke 15 is a lot of people's favorite chapter in the Bible, and it's because the depiction of God is just so powerful and so beautiful. God in Scripture describes himself and reveals himself in all kinds of ways throughout the whole Bible, but there's just something about Luke 15 and this compassionate Father that just stirs a lot of our hearts, and so I just love how God reveals himself and shows who he is as a compassionate father in Luke 15. So here's what we're going to do today. We are just going to go through basically the father's part of the story in, in Luke 15 today. And then we're going to look at three different sorts of love coming from the father in the story. Now remember, because the father is being used as like a metaphor for who God is, these sorts of love that the father has in the story is the sort of love that God has for us. And so the love that we look at that comes from the Father is really love that comes from God, okay? And so the three sorts of love that we're going to look at is first, we're going to look at costly love, then we're going to look at gracious love, and then third, we're going to look at abundant love, okay? So that's what we're going to do. Before we look at those three sorts of love, we'll go through uh, the story together. So I just want to remind you about a good book suggestion. I suggested it last week. I'm going to suggest it this week. You could, I think there's a picture. This book is called The Cross and the Prodigal. It's by Kenneth Bailey. Uh, C.J. Thompson, one of our elders who helps shepherd and oversee the church, he actually suggested it to me about a month or two ago. And I, I, I was like, oh, I was, already I was already planning to do this series. I was like, this is perfect. And so 
this is one of my favorite books I've read in recent memory. Like, it has just stirred my heart for God. If you, if you want to go deeper into Luke 15, if you want to go deeper in particular in this prodigal son story, or as I think is better called the, the story of the two lost sons, uh, I w- pick up this book. If you can't afford buying a book, I'd love to buy it for you. Just stop by the Connect desk and tell Kyle and make him buy it for you. And so... Um, we, I, would, I would love to get you guys, it's a very easy read, it's a very good scholarly book, but it's also pretty approachable and easy to read. Pick up this book if you want to go a little bit deeper, I think it's a great book, it works great as a devotional too, if you kind of just want to read it chapter by chapter as a devotional read, so, so I just wanted to suggest that as well. So, that being said, let's, let's hop into it. We're not going to read the whole story this week, uh, just for time's sake, so let me give you a bit of a recap of what we saw last week. Jesus begins to tell this story about this family that has two sons. And there's this younger son who wants his inheritance before the father is dead. And so he asks the father, can I have my inheritance now? Which would have been like saying, dad, I don't trust you. I wish you were dead. Can you give me the inheritance? So he, the dad, even though this is like a very offensive thing to hear, the dad says, okay, I'm going to give you your inheritance. He gives the son his portion of the inheritance. The son sells it, probably short sale, real fast in front of the whole family, more than likely, takes the cash, goes to a distant country, and just parties. Just, it literally says, like, he, wild living. So you could say the prodigal son wilds out, okay? So the son, he goes out, lives wildly, loses all his money. A famine comes to this country and the, uh, that the son is in, and the son is just destitute. He finds himself working for this uh, other kind of rich man in this uh, distant country, feeding the pigs. He comes to his senses, and he just kind of goes, like, listen, my, my dad would let me, like the servants that work for my dad, they, they eat more than I do right now. I need to go back, become a servant for my dad, and I'll, I'll have a better situation than my, my situation right now. So he, he journeys back home and, and with this idea of becoming a servant for his dad, but before he ever gets a chance to say, Dad, I'll become your servant, the dad rushes out to the son, welcomes the son back with loving, honoring arms, and that's, that's kind of where we left off in the story last week. And there was two things we learned from the prodigal son story that's just important for us to know going into today is uh, about the prodigal son and what it teaches about us. The first was that all humans, like the prodigal son, at some point want God dead, which sounds extreme, or cut out of their life. And I think the prodigal son shows, shows us that that is very often a real thing in us. And if it sounds extreme to you, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week. And then we also learned that it's only the Father's love, it's only God's love, it's only when we see his love will our hearts melt into true repentance. Okay, so that's what we learned last week. Let's pick up the story. We're going to pick up the story in verse 17. It's as the son is walking home, uh, thinking about what he's going to do as he gets home. So we'll get to verse 17 of Luke chapter 15, and I'll take a quick drink. And we're going to read the whole rest of the chapter. So uh, it's a bit lengthy, but it shows us kind of a lot of the father's love. So that's why I want to read it all. So verse 17 says this. When the prodigal son came to his senses, he said... How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out, go back to my father, and say to him, Father, 
I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, quick, bring, bring my best robe, put it on him, get my signet ring, put it on his fingers. He, he, he doesn't have any shoes on. Let's get some sandals for him. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to get the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's where the story ends. And as we're zooming in on the compassionate father, I think it's already easy to see how loving this father is. There's three kinds of love that we're going to look at. We're going to see his costly love, we're going to see his gracious love, and we're going to see his abundant love. But let's look at his costly love first. Now, this might not be as obvious to us 21st century readers and listeners of this story, but to the first century listeners of this story, they would have seen every move that the father makes as costly to himself. The first century listeners to the story, as Jesus was telling the story for the first time, they would have said, this father is exacting a cost on himself that's insane. And in fact, they would have seen it in all these different ways that the father socially humiliates himself in the story. And they would have said, man, this is costly love that this father has. Now, remember from last week, we learned that families back then, they they lived in villages or they lived on a property connected to a village. And uh, this this particular father was uh, the patriarch of his family. He was probably kind of like a mini king in in some ways uh, of, of his family and probably had a lot of influence and sway in his village. And they lived very communally as a village. And this father in this story, who's this respected patriarch, he breaks about just about every social rule that a patriarch was supposed to follow, and he humiliates himself in all kinds of ways. Now, before you start to, I think it's kind of easy for us from a distance to go, oh, they have social rules, like how antiquated, how primitive, like of that society, like we're so much better, like it's, it's a shame that that's how it worked back then. But I, I, listen, you just can't see where you do the exact same thing, 
right? Like, it's easy for us to look at other cultures and go, like, oh, look how backwards that is, or they do that. These things that are social taboos, like, it's easy for us to judge us. I just say, hey, we've got all kinds of stuff in us that we would, that we would say, man, that person's bringing shame on themselves. They have no shame. They're humiliating themselves. And, and we would change how we relate to that person based on how they carry themselves. You, some of you would say, yes, totally, but most of us go, no, I'm not like that. Here, just a quick example, quick example. Here's what I feel pretty sure of. I feel pretty sure of, if I wore a tank top today and preached in a tank top, some first-time visitors might not come back, okay? I feel pretty sure about that, and I feel also pretty sure I would hear 1,000 comments about it, okay? I, want, I feel more sure about that, actually, okay? We all have social things where we go, that's weird. Like, why are you doing That's the wrong. And, and so some of these social taboos that the father uh, breaks in this story, he brings humiliation upon himself. We just try not to judge because we've got all kinds of stuff. Uh, I thought of other examples too, but I, I didn't want to get controversial on a Sunday. So here we go. Uh, so here's one of the, so, the like, socially humiliating things that the father does. He runs. He runs in the story. Any first century listener to the story would have been shocked to hear Jesus tell a story in which this patriarch runs to his son. In fact, to give you more of a glimpse of it, uh, the, the father, he probably wore this like long flowing robe of some sort, think toga, I guess, I don't know, like uh, of some sort, and he probably had to hike it up and hold it in his hands as he ran, which would have been the first time anybody in the village, besides probably his brothers growing up, saw his legs. And this would have been extremely, extremely shameful for the father. The father, by making this decision to run, have everybody not only see him run, but see his chicken legs, would have made, brought a lot of shame upon him. And the village would have been like, this, what is this, this guy? Like, they, they would say, this guy's a loser <laughs> when they began to see him do this, right? And, and maybe you're like, nah, I don't know if that's true. Now, uh, Kenneth Bailey, the scholar of that book that I suggested, he actually said, I think within the last 40 years or so, he knew a pastor in the Middle East who just walked fast, who was rejected by his community. <laughs> and so these are, these are social taboos. Again, don't judge because we've got our things that they don't have and all this kind of stuff. Every culture has these kinds of things. But this father running, more than likely showing his legs as he was running, this would have been extremely shameful for this father to do. The culture that Jesus is telling this story in was an honor and shame culture. I don't know if you've heard that word before, but there's many cultures throughout history that the way they th think through right and wrong is not through uh, what is right or what is wrong, but it's through this honor and shame paradigm. They think through what will bring my name and my family's name honor and what will bring, or, or what will bring my name or my family's name shame. And this is how that culture thought through right and wrong. And so the father is bringing this immense shame to himself by running to his son. All first century listeners of this story would have said, whoa, this is crazy. This is wild. But the father had to run to his son. Okay, so here's why. As we talked about, 
last week and today already a bit, is villages were, were very communal back then. Everybody, you know, served one another, bartered with one another, provided for one another in different kinds of, of ways. That's how these villages function. And something in, uh, to know about these villages is there was always usually a bunch of young men who were not quite adult age yet, and they would just kind of probably wander around the village, often wander around the outskirts of the village. This is a classic boys just exploring the woods type of a thing. And so here's what would have happened is as the prodigal son was walking back into the village, back to the father's property, the first group that probably saw the prodigal son were the youth. And they immediately, because of the culture they were in, they would know that it would be time to shame this son. Especially if he came back destitute like he was coming back. To go away, lose all your family's money that you also took early and you used for yourself rather than for the good of the family, you would have been seen as just anathema, right? And so these youth would have seen him and they would have started surrounding him, taunting him, yelling at him, some maybe even throwing rocks at him. Some of the youth would have ran and got their dads. And very soon, as the son started to enter town, the prodigal son started to enter town, there would be a mob formed. And they would actually take that son, they would take him into the center of town, and they had this ceremony that they would perform called a kazaza ceremony. I said last week, it's fun to say. It's still fun to say. Like, it's just a fun kazaza ceremony, okay? And this kazaza ceremony, the whole purpose of the ceremony was to excommunicate this son who had squandered his father's wealth. So they'd take the son into the center of the village or to the father's property. They'd get a big clay pot. They'd break the pot. And then everybody in the village would start chanting, the son's name is cut off from this family. The son's name is cut off. The son's name is cut off. And then they would excommunicate him and he would no longer be welcome to live in that community, in that village. And so the father, in this story, he knows that if his son were ever to return, all of that would happen to his son. Unless the father gets to him first. So the father runs to his son, not caring about the social shame that it would bring upon himself. He knew he had to get to his son in order to protect his son. This is costly love. This is costly love in in a physical illustration. The father runs to the son to protect the son as he takes on the shame and the scorn that the son was supposed to get. It now goes on the father instead. This is costly love. You see more costly love as, as the father interacts with the son. There's no, set, no deal made where the father's like, you've got to pay me back and we've got to figure this out. The father just begins to lavish the son with love, with honor, with dignity, and all sorts of get, Gives him the best robe, which was the father's robe, and a sign of immense honor. He puts it on the son. He puts on what is probably the signet ring, which had like authority and power to whomever had it. He then has this uh, literal cost of, of putting sandals on his feet and throwing this feast. Some literal cost there in the father's love. But again, social cost for the father. To throw a feast for this son who squandered your money would have looked like to the whole village as totally foolish and crazy. But 
this father is, is willing to spend whatever he wants to honor and celebrate this son who he loves. Costly love. There's another part of the story that I think is not as obvious to us about the costly love of a father, and it's when he goes to plead with the older son in the story. The older son resents his younger brother, and he, he resents him for being selfish with the family wealth, like we talked about last week. This is crazy what the prodigal son did. And so the older son comes back in from working. He hears about this party happening, and he's furious. He's so angry that his father is throwing a party for his younger brother. I bet he's thinking, I wish I came home early so I could stop this. And the older son then refuses to go into the party. This would have been socially unacceptable for the older son to do. In fact, more than likely, the older son was already shirking his responsibilities as the older son. We don't know from the details of the story as Jesus is telling it. But when a younger son or someone in the family was kind of cutting off relationship with their father, with the family in different ways, it was actually the older older son's responsibility to reconcile the two. And it seems like that doesn't happen in the story at all. Maybe, maybe it does in Jesus' imaginary story, but, but it seems like this is an older son who's already shirking his responsibilities, and now he's so offended by the father's party for this younger son that he refuses to go in. This would have been seen as just so socially unacceptable. It would have been seen as a major insubordination on the part of the older son. And the, the village, as they watched this older son outside of this party that they're all at, by the way, they would have thought, okay, this guy's got some son issues for sure. But then they also would have thought, okay, with this older son, either A, the older son needs to come into the party, come right up to the father, and ask for forgiveness for his insubordination. Or B, the father needs to deal with this son in some sort of punitive way. And, and he needed to do that to show the village that he had his house in order. For the, for the father to not do it, for it to not go in one of those two ways, the whole village, again, more shame going to the father, the whole village would have said, this guy does not even have his house in order. How can we trust or respect this guy anymore? He has more shame put on him. And in both of those scenarios, whether the son comes in and asks for forgiveness or whether the son is punished, in both of those scenarios, what the village thought should happen, the father would never have gone out to the son and pleaded with him. But he does. The father in the story goes out and pleads with his older son, and he just says, please, see my heart for your brother and join me in celebrating him. This story would be so shocking to this first century audience. This father doesn't make the son come to him. This father doesn't send some people out to get him, punish him, or bring him in and punish him. This father goes out to the son, and in that moment, the village is watching. They're going, now he's going to bring it, probably. And the father instead goes, please, man, just come in. He pleads with them. Another way that's translated is he, he, he entreats them. He, he entreats him. He's trying to convince him. 
that he should come into the party, that he should celebrate his brother who is lost but now is found. This would have brought so much shame upon the father. All throughout this parable, we see the costly love of the father. In order to love both of his sons, there are literal costs he pays and a ton of social costs that he pays. And he's willing to do it because he loves his sons. That means for us, guys, God's love is costly. And you can just see this in Jesus' life. As Jesus walks out the rest of his life, he often does what the Father does. He often puts himself in situations with sinners where he gets the shame and the scorn the sinner was getting instead of them. And we see the ultimate cost play out in God's love, his costly love for us when Jesus goes to the cross himself, pain for our sins, pain for our debts with his actual life, with his actual blood. God's love for us is costly. That's one of the first things we see here. The next sort of love we see the father have is, is gracious love. Gracious love. I actually, I think you could call this section also merciful or unconditional love. I just didn't want to have like five points. So the father's actions, as we said many times, would have been so shocking in the first century audience he envelops the son in love and covers him with love before the son has any chance to get any words out. And even after the son does get some words out, the father still pours love on the son. Right? The first century listeners would have said, this son deserves a beating. Or at the very least, this, this son needs to earn his way back into the family. Because sometimes things like this would happen with sons and they would earn their way back into the family. They would pick up a trade like the son was saying he wanted to do. Probably even work that trade either for the family or in another place and earn the money back and give it back to the family as a way to earn their way back into the family, as a way to reconcile themselves back into the family. And so when the first century listeners hear the story and see that it doesn't go down that way at all, the first century listeners would have said, this father's love is foolish, and they would have, it's definitely merciful, but it's, they probably would have said, this is foolishly merciful, this father was definitely withholding what the first century listeners thought the son deserved. I also think you, you see not only is the, God, uh, the father's love, which is God's love, is merciful in the story, but you see that it's unconditional. The father clearly just loves his sons because he loves his sons. Right? It's very evident with the prodigal son, but it's evident with the older son if you know what's going on there. The father loves his son because it's his son. The father loves both of his sons because they are his sons. Unconditional love on a creational level makes sense to a lot of us parents. But I wonder if Jesus telling stories like this, this is just kind of a sidebar, I wonder if Jesus telling stories like this made unconditional love between parents and children much more commonplace. A lot of the ways that Jesus taught about love has influence all of society and all of history and the things that we take as obvious to us like unconditional love of a parent are there because Jesus showed us that God has that sort of love. And so the father in this story, he's merciful and he has unconditional love for his son. And I put all of that in the category of gracious love because grace in scripture is a gift. 
Grace is the fact that God gives us this sort of favor and love just because he wants to. Just because he is a generous God. Just because he is a gift-giving God. And all of that, to me, just fits in this idea of God being gracious and having this gracious love for us. And we see that. We get this love through Jesus. And Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he's telling this story in the context of getting in trouble for hanging out with a bunch of sinners who he was loving graciously. God has gracious, merciful, unconditional love for us. I don't know if I believe that about God all the time. I don't know if that's how we talk about God all the time. There always seems to be caveats. And yet all throughout scripture, God is saying, I have gracious, merciful, unconditional love for us. And then preachers like me get up here and say other things about him. He has gracious, merciful, unconditional love. He's, there's more ways that God shows who he is to be clear. But I think sometimes we just ignore this aspect of God. Okay, I, finally, I want to look at God's abundant love. Abundant love. On this, you know, I've read this chapter a lot of times. I've probably even preached on this chapter before in my life. And on this study of it, there's one line that's really stuck out to me this time through the story. And it's the line where the father is talking to the older son who just said, look, I've slaved for you my whole life. You don't even give me a young goat. And the father's response is, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. It's interesting to me that this was something that the older son needed to hear. Right? The, the older son was convinced his younger brother had more privileges than he did in some way. And the father essentially says to him, that's, that's not true. The, the older son's going, he gets a feast, I get nothing. The father going, is going, he gets a feast, you can have a feast. You're always with me, you can have this too. You've had access to this the whole time. I think what we're seeing is the abundant love of the Father here. It could be really easy to walk away from this story and kind of go, well, God, he really only loves the younger, ty younger son types of the world. And then miss the great lengths the Father goes to to love the older son too in the story. I think it's easy to miss that. The father says to the older son, all my stuff is yours too. There's a feast for you too, anytime you want it. God's love is an abundant love. I think a lot of times as we walk out our faith as Christians, we can feel like God is withholding true joy and true pleasure from us. Sometimes we see the Christian walk as a burden, and listen, I get it. It's sometimes, it feels like a burden sometimes. That's part of our sinful nature. That's part of our flesh. That's part of waiting until the resurrection happens, like Jesus returns and our resurrection happens. Like, that's part of it. And it's hard, too, when we see so many prodigals just taking their inheritance and doing whatever they want with it. It can feel like the Christian walk is a burden. But what if... The same joys and feasts that the father gives the younger son are available to the older son as well, and you and I can find those joys in God. 
I think they are. I think they are available. I think God has abundant love. I think that's part of what this parable is teaching. That even for you as a Christian, you can have the joys and the pleasures and the feasts like the younger son has. And there's this benefit of just being in the like, fold in the family and not ever having walked away. Like, I think we can find joy in the Father and love in the Father and not sin. Some of us are convinced we have to sin. We have to do the wild living in order to find joy and pleasure. I think the father in the story is saying, no, I have it all right here. And a lot of us older son types have this kind of weird Christian walk that's just completely joyless, completely against pleasure. And what we have to realize is actually all of our joy, all of our pleasure can be found in God. We have access to God's abundant love. God's love is not a withholding love. It's an abundant, abundant love that you and I, through Jesus, have access to right now. I don't think we talk enough about the abundant love of God. It's abundant. So, in this story, we've seen that the Father has costly love, he has gracious love, and he has abundant love, which means God has costly love for us, gracious love for us, and abundant love for us. And we see this in Jesus' life, right? We, we already talked about this. Jesus, we see his costly love. It's displayed in all sorts of ways, but the, the climactic moment of Jesus' costly love is when he's on the cross dying for our sins. We see Jesus' gracious love because he's the sort of person who washes Judas' feet and he dines with sinners. We see Jesus' abundant love because he's constantly telling us that everything he's doing is for the world. Not just for some small group of people, but for the world. So after all that, hearing about God's costly love, his gracious love, his abundant love. What do I, as a pastor, want you to do with that? I want you to see it, and I want you to rest in it. One of the things I struggled with as a kid in the 90s, I don't know, it felt like this was said a lot in the 90s at the churches I was part of, but it was, Jesus loves you. I guess I was a weird kid because I struggled hearing that as a kid. I'd hear it all the time. And the reason I struggled with it is because Jesus' love always kind of felt distant or just felt like an idea. It didn't feel like something I had or was part of or that he was really loving me in some sort of way. And I, it was probably also hard for me because a lot of the circles I ran in really talked about these like really extraordinary supernatural experiences in order to experienced God's love, and I wasn't having any of that happen. And so I struggled with this phrase, Jesus loves you. And now, decades later, I have the audacity to say, Jesus loves you. <laughs> Jesus loves you. So what do I want you to do with that? I want to help you see that Jesus loves you, and I want to help you rest in Jesus' love. Sometimes I think seeing God's love for us, it is easy. Sometimes for some of us, it is really easy. Sometimes it's really difficult. 
Something good to note is in this story of these two lost sons, they both have trouble seeing the love of the Father. I want all of us, as we listen to this story and think about this story, I want us to see the love of the Father. So how, how do we see it? Here's what I'll say. Sometimes we want some massive experience from God, and that's how we're going to see his love, or that's the only way we could see his love. And here's what's cool about God. He does that sometimes. Sometimes that happens. But I want you to see that we can see God's love in the more ordinary moments as well. Like, if you are just listening to this story, and you are just seeing and understanding the love that Jesus is communicating and teaching in this story, you are seeing God's love for you. Right? Or maybe this. Maybe it's just something stirring in you. You're like, man, this Father's love is beautiful. You are seeing the beautiful love of God for you. Maybe you're, you're just like, man, that is a beautiful story. You're just, like, you're just thinking it's a beautiful story. You are seeing and recognizing God's love for you and for the world. God loves you, and it's sometimes a bit easier to see than we, we want to admit. God is willing to bring shame to himself to love you. He's looking at you and for you from a long way off. Jesus on the cross had you in his mind. He's got a huge amount of love for anyone and everyone. I hope we can see it. I hope today I hope to see it a little bit. You can most, and if you're still having trouble, you can most clearly see the love of God in and through Jesus. So I think sometimes recognizing the love of God, seeing the love of God, even culturally, like when, when people do believe in God, they, they typically see him as a God who loves. I think there, there's some truth in there. They just might not believe in, in, in the correct name of who God is or know who he is on a personal level. But you can... We can see the love of God, but what does it mean, how do we rest, what does it mean for us to rest in God's love? How do we rest in God's love? I think the way to rest in God's love is through this thing that, this phrase in church history uh, is often called the means of grace, by, by participating in the means of grace. So in, in church history, it's been used in a lot of different ways and connected to a lot of different actions. So depending on what part of like Christian tradition you're part of, you think the means of grace are different things. But the means of grace are typically connected to things like prayer, things like reading scripture, corporate worship, serving others, caring for others, and, and communion. All of these things are, are often usually pointed to as, as God's means of grace. All of these things uh, are, are ways to connect to God. And there's other things that probably could fall into the means of grace. And I think that when we pursue the means of grace as a regular part of our lives, what you'll find is that you are resting in God's love as you pursue the means of grace. Now, I can already hear you. You're saying, Anthony, it sounds like what you're saying is I have to do spiritual work to get God's love. It's not what I'm saying. Somehow, at some point, God's love gets to you. And his love does not go up or down based on, on how much you're accessing the means of grace or these ways of connecting with God. 
But I do think when we pursue them, we are making a practice of intentionally resting in his love. Like sometimes this is just how the world works and how God is. Sometimes you will deeply know and understand God's love without doing any of the means of grace. And sometimes as you intentionally pursue the means of grace in all kinds of ways and you are really practicing spiritual disciplines, you will not feel connected to God's love. But either way, I think that if we, f- we will find ourselves resting in God's love more intentionally when we participate in these means of grace. Whether or not you do these things, God's love is still there for you but I think they can help us rest in his love and know his love more deeply. Listen, some of us, we've had relationships in our lives with family members or friends or whomever that where we had to be perfect, we had to act certain ways to be loved. God, through this parable, says no. That is not how it works. I love you no matter what. Just turn from your way of life, fall into my arms, accept my love. I... As I was studying this passage, like, I was just like, my heart is, is just like so stirred by this message from God to us. Like, because do you know what this means, guys? It means no matter what, you and me, we're okay. Like, we're okay, no matter what. Like, I, I, I am, I'm a sinner, and I know it, but I really actually try to convince myself I'm not, okay? That's a little bit of the older brother in me, all right? I'm constantly kind of like going, I'm not really sinning. But then I have this re- weird dichotomy where I have the, sh- the shame of sin on my soul and on my heart. And Jesus says his love is the sort of love that will find you and take away your shame and put it on himself. And that means no matter what, you and me, we're okay. We're okay. No matter what's going on, God's love has gotten to us in that way. Church, may you see God's love for you in this story about this compassionate father. Don't let anyone tell you you're not seeing God's love when you are and when you have. And then let us rest in his costly, gracious, abundant love. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us. When I just think about the context of Jesus telling this story, I'm just astounded, and your love is just that much more powerful to me, God. Could you make that context come alive a little bit for us in this moment as we're praying and, and then even reflecting, God? Oh, God, your, your love is so good. God, I pray for one group in here who has had a hard time seeing your love, knowing your love, believing in your love, God. I pray you break through somehow, or you already have broken through, and that we just recognize that. And God, I pray for the second group that maybe doesn't have as hard a time, but I pray that, that your love is refreshed in them and that they just rejoice in it and connect to it. Like, like, a, like a husband bringing flowers home to his wife, that we would rejoice in your love as a gift in that kind of way this morning, God. God, we love you. We need you. Spirit, do work this morning in us as you've told us a lot about your love. Amen.